Heads up, horror fans. Say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening. We interrupt our program to bring you Final Girl Friday. Welcome to Final Girl Friday. I am Molly, and I like scary movies. What I should actually say is welcome to Final Girl Sunday, as this is a bit of a last-minute episode. This weekend's original episode, where Jordy and I sat down for an in-depth retrospective and analysis of the craft from 1996, and we also took a couple of old-school-style horror personality quizzes, because we figured we're just going to go straight back to high school and go all the way for the craft. Um, I had such a great time recording this episode with him. We had just so much fun sitting around talking about the movie for hours. But we were recording in a different location, for one thing, and I was using some borrowed equipment. And although we we ran like several thorough tests and we thought we had everything set up properly, there were just a few complications. And most of what we recorded is usable, but it's proving to be the most challenging edit that I have taken on since I started doing this back in the summer. So I knew, coupled with working all weekend, that there was just no way I was going to be able to get it edited and posted by Monday. Um, so I turned to you guys on the Discord, and thankfully, you were just so accommodating, and you gave me some really great ideas and suggestions for some last-minute content. You also provided me with some questions, which I will be answering before I wrap up tonight. So thank you guys so much. I love I love our little Discord community. <laughs> We make me so happy. But uh, before I answer you guys' questions, Susie Q asked if I would talk about either a Hammer or Amicus film starring or featuring either Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing. So I thought, well, firstly, that sounds like a lot of fun. And secondly, why don't I talk about a movie that features both of those actors? So tonight I'm going to be talking about what is easily one of the most harshly criticized and widely hated of the Hammer Dracula films that I actually personally really enjoy. It is the very stupidly titled Dracula AD 1972. It really is just the worst fucking title for a movie possibly ever. I think I think it's second only to Dr. T and the Women, which I haven't even seen, but I hate the title of that movie so much. I just it makes just flames. Dracula AD 1972 appropriately released in 1972, is definitely one of the least popular films in Hammer's Dracula series. But I really do like it a lot. I like all of the Hammer Dracula films, in fact. And, and yes, I mean all of them, including The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which arguably shouldn't even really be included uh, in a list of films in that particular series, because it completely obliterates any continuity that existed in the previous films. And it's a crossover martial arts movie, and, and, and I really like it. <laughs> Rest assured, I will not be trying to sell anyone on Dracula AD being a great movie. It is not a great movie. But it is one that I have always been very entertained by. In fact, it's only grown on me over the years. And you guys know me, any opportunity to defend the underdog. So that's the film I'll be talking about tonight. Thank you so much for the request, Susie Q. I, I hope you enjoy this. If you're new here and you are interested in joining our Discord community, please stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on how you can do just that. And as always, if you have not seen Dracula AD 1972, as much as it breaks my heart, I encourage you to shut me down, just turn this podcast off, and go watch it yourself. Otherwise, I'm about to spoil the entire film for you. I'm sure most of you listening to this are probably familiar in one way or another with Hammer Films, but in case you aren't, uh, to give you a brief history, Hammer Film Productions was founded in the 1930s, and it is largely considered to be one of history's most successful independent film companies and is definitely one of the oldest film companies in the world. Things really took off for Hammer Films in 1955 with the release of a sci-fi horror film called The Quarter Mass Experiment, which was an enormous critical and commercial success. It changed Hammer Films overnight. Because of the success of that film, they started focusing a lot more of their efforts into horror. So much so that now when we hear Hammer Films, I think most of us think horror films. But according to the Hammer Films website, only a third of Hammer's catalog consists of horror films, but that's how fantastic their horror films are are. Hammer and horror, just that those two words go together, you know, in the mind. They are fused for all eternity. Um, 
So yeah, but that started with the quarter mass experiment in 55. They had the incredible foresight to just immediately switch gears, start focusing on horror. And then on top of that, they made an even better decision with the release of The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957. It was the first time that Hammer Films had ever released a full-length, full-color film. But not only that, it was the first time that audiences had ever seen the characters of Frankenstein and the creature in color. It also allowed Hammer to sort of break new ground when it came to the depiction of blood and gore and violence in film because of that, you know, brilliant, vibrant use of color. Um, the Curse of Frankenstein was also directed by Terence Fisher, who has also kind of become synonymous with horror, particularly among fans of Hammer films. He's kind of a golden boy of Hammer horror. And so you just had all of these great working parts coming together. Add to that, it was the first film that featured both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee on screen together in a Hammer horror film. They made history all over the place with The Curse of Frankenstein. And the success of the film was evidence of that. And so with the success of that film, they then followed up with Dracula, or what we know in the States as horror of Dracula. They were afraid that we would confuse Dracula with the 1931 version of Dracula, so gave it a slightly different title, which also featured Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And that film in particular, what made that a historic film for me more than anything is that it was the first time that we saw those two actors, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, in what I believe to be one of the most phenomenal on-screen rivalries that I have just ever seen. There are very few actors that have the kind of chemistry that Cushing and Lee had. And in Dracula specifically, with Peter Cushing playing the role of, well, over time, several Van Helsings, and Christopher Lee playing Count Dracula, these two characters are, are so important and so iconic and exciting in and of themselves. And that is actually a big part of why I enjoy Dracula AD, which is the seventh film in Hammer's Dracula series. And it was essentially like the second time they had tried to reboot it um, because as successful as Hammer was with these horror revivals that they did with characters like Dracula and Frankenstein's monster and the mummy, by around the early to mid-70s, gothic horror, which is very much what these still were, I mean, yes, they were revitalizing these characters with a more modern color palette, using more modern technologies, but they still retained a lot of the gothic sensibilities of all of those original stories and, you know, the original films that were made from them. And so when gothic horror started to fall out of fashion, Hammer tried to keep the, the series alive with what were essentially reboots. What I'm reminded of most often whenever I think about Hammer horror films of the 70s is the character of Peter Vincent from Fright Night. I have always interpreted Peter Vincent as a, a tribute to these great classic gothic horror actors like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee who were sort of exalted within that vein by Hammer Horror, by the films they were in and the audiences that loved them. And the speech that Peter Vincent gives to Charlie, where he talks about how people don't want to see vampires anymore. Really, with the success of films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the early 70s, um, and I think coupled too with like Romero's Night of the Living Dead series, it's just, it's true. Gothic horror was not as exciting to people um, by the mid-70s as it had been. And so, yeah. So Hammer Films was kind of, they had their back up against the wall. They wanted to keep these series going. They wanted to stay afloat. So Dracula AD and its direct sequel, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, are what we got. So Dracula AD 1972, I hate having to say that full title every time. I'm just going to call it Dracula AD and, and call it good. So Dracula AD. Now, one of the reasons why this is a film that I will never be able to you know, hate as much as the rest of the world does is because it was actually the first time that Cushing and Lee had been on screen together in these particular roles in several films. Um, you know, Cushing had played Van Helsing without Christopher Lee, and Christopher Lee had played Dracula without Peter Cushing. This was the first time in, in many movies that they were together again. And the beginning of the film throws you right into the middle of exactly what you want, which is a fight to the death between Count Dracula and Lawrence Van Helsing on top of a runaway carriage that is just flying down the lane in 1872. And it's so exciting. I love the opening scene of this film because it is, as I said, it's exactly what we want. You know, you want to see Cushing and Lee battling it out as these characters. And they knew that. So they fight until the carriage crashes and Dracula is impaled by one of the broken wheels from the carriage. And both he and Van Helsing die there on the side of the road. 
when Dracula dies, we see him decay right before our very eyes, which was something they did several times throughout the Dracula series, and I, I always really enjoyed that effect. Before I can get any further into the story, I do have to make mention of the score to this film, which was uh, composed by Mike Vickers, and it's one of the biggest complaints that I hear about this film is this score. Because they were trying to appeal to younger audiences in the 1970s, the story does start in 1872, but we then very quickly jump forward in time 100 years to 1972, hence the title of the film. And one of the things that they did to kind of reinforce this idea, you know, this bringing these gothic characters into the modern world, was they scored the film using like 70s funk music. Most people hate this. I love it. There is a really great excerpt from a book written by a man named Gary Smith. The book is called Vampire Films of the 1970s, Dracula to Blackula and Every Fang in Between. That's an example of a good title. In his book, which was published in 2017, he defends Dracula AD, saying what seemed like a terrible idea back in 1972 really isn't so dire after all. Now, so far removed from its contemporary setting, the swinging London of Dracula AD 1972 seems as much a period piece as the Victorian settings of its predecessors. And I couldn't agree with that more. I think that's probably one of the reasons why, at least for me, it's so easy for me to enjoy this film. Critics hated this movie when it first came out. And one of the things I think that they hated most about it was the depiction of early 70s British youth culture and how overdone and cartoonish it was. Um, but I mean, I think in all fairness, if somebody from 1897 were able to watch films that we make set in that time period, they would also probably have just myriad complaints uh, about the things that we are doing, the, the ways in which we're depicting their culture and their way of life. So yeah, it is a very cartoonish depiction of the 70s. And they do focus pretty heavily on the era in which the film is set. I think the secondary opening scene of the film is probably the worst, or you could say best example of them kind of driving the 70s thing into the ground. But for the most part, it doesn't bother me. You know, I was born in 83. I, I have no idea what it was like to watch this movie in 72. And I feel that now in 2019, it's just becoming easier and easier to forgive um, that aspect of the film. So, yeah. But the film does begin in 1872 with Dracula and Van Helsing dying together on the road. And they're not alone. They've been followed by a young man on horseback who stops at the site of their death. And after Dracula has decayed and turned to ash, he gathers Dracula's ashes in a glass tube and shuffles along on his way. Then, bam, it's 100 years later. We are in swinging London in 1972. The film does feature the same vibrant, bright red opening credits that all of its, its predecessors featured, only the font has been modernized. And we do get a secondary scene of a house party gone rogue that is a little tough to stomach only because it goes on for so incredibly long. And it's meant to establish... I think two things. One, the story is set in 1972. In case you were ever going to forget it, the house party scene will remind you and will burn that into your brain. But I think the other thing that it is meant to establish, this is probably just me reading a little bit too much into it, uh, especially knowing a lot of the circumstances that led to the creation of this film. I, I don't know that it's fair to inject a lot of like deliberate artistic intent with some of these scenes, but um, I kind of feel when I watch this scene now, you have all of these British youths from the early 70s. There's a lot of fringe and a lot of just some fantastic facial hair, an excessive use of the color orange. People are dancing on tables and making out under furniture. It's like a house party in a posh like high society estate. And there are all of these older people that are very formally dressed that are just sort of standing up against the walls, looking on as their house is invaded by dozens upon dozens of these kids. The, a young man whose name I think is Charles wearing Coke bottle glasses and a tux is being chewed out by his mother who's like, I told you you could just invite a couple of people. And he's like, I'm sorry, I'll call the cops. And the main group of kids that we follow throughout a large portion of the story start arguing about how long it's going to take the police to get there. They're like kind of making bets and, and they're pushing their limits. So they're not going to try to take off from this party and run away until like right at the last second. So I feel that the other thing that this whole lengthy scene is meant to suggest is how bored these kids are. Because their boredom is very important to the story, which borrows heavily from Taste the Blood of Dracula. It's important for, for us to understand just how idle-handed these kids really are. And then that's why they do the things they do, you know? Among the crowd, we see 
a man who looks mysteriously like the young man we saw collecting Dracula's ashes 100 years earlier, minus the mutton chops. And that part is very confusing because how the fuck is it the same guy? Like, explain to me how Johnny Alucard, uh, how is he the same guy who was collecting Dracula's ashes? Is he just immortal because he worships Dracula? Because he's a disciple of Dracula, he just gets to live forever? Or does he just look exactly like his grandfather did? I'm assuming that that's what they're implying, which is something they also did with the character of Van Helsing in a much more effective and acceptable way. (laughs) But so Johnny Alucard, who looks exactly like the guy who collected the ashes, um, is a part of a friend group consisting of a few guys, a few girls, most notably of which is Jessica Van Helsing, played by Stephanie Beecham. And she is also one of the reasons I really love this film. My reasoning is mostly that I grew up loving her in Sequest DSV. (laughs) She was the chief medical officer on the Sequest, and I never really got to know her as a younger actress. You know, by the time I got to her, she had already started to assume more matronly roles. So it's just really cool to get to see her play like an unruly teenager in 72. I really like that. She and Johnny and the rest of their friends push themselves to the very limit. The cops arrive and drive everybody out. And then we're with them the following day at their favorite hangout spot, which is a coffee bar called The Cavern or just Cavern. And we get yet still more of their boredom. So Johnny, who we later learned joined their friend group a few months earlier and just sort of took it over, takes it advantage of their boredom and convinces them that it would be really fun, really far out and groovy if they got together later that night and performed a black mass. I mean, who doesn't want to perform satanic rituals when they're really bored? You know, show of hands? Nobody? Exactly. So they all agree, Jessica more reluctantly than the rest of her friends, but ultimately she as well. They all agree to meet later that night at midnight Uh, at this abandoned chapel to perform some mystery ritual that they all basically think is just kind of for a laugh. You know, none of them take it seriously. Johnny does mention during this conversation that the ritual will take place uh, during an event called the Feast of Belphegor, which I thought was really interesting because Belphegor is one of the seven princes of hell, often used as a representation for sloth, the deadly sin sloth, which I just thought was kind of a neat choice considering that these kids who have got nothing but time on their hands and they are just constantly bored, are looking for that next big thrill, something to excite them. Although sloth and boredom are not necessarily mutually exclusive, I do think that choosing a demon that is often associated with sloth as well as the desire to get rich quick, I thought that was just kind of a neat choice. So Jessica and her boyfriend Bob leave Uh, the coffee bar. Bob drops Jessica off at home to get ready for the ritual, and she does so by poking around in her grandfather's study and reading up a little bit on the occult and satanic rituals. When her grandfather comes home, this is where we're introduced to Peter Cushing as Professor Lorimer Van Helsing, looking dapper as fuck. I love him in this role so much. If I haven't stressed that enough already, Peter Cushing will always be Van Helsing to me. He is my favorite Van Helsing. And I just love the way that they created the character for this particular series of films. Regardless of any incontinuities, I could be wrong, but I think Peter Cushing played three different Van Helsings in this series. Um, And they're all really great. He has this comforting father figure who is compassionate and wise and who will help advise you and guide you through whatever problems you may have. Um, in a very gentle way, but you also get the feeling that it's just a kind of outer shell for the badass within. This guy has seen some shit, and he will do whatever it takes to make sure that he protects himself and his family and essentially the world. He's a very cool character, and I think that Cushing was always just the perfect person for that job. So when he comes home and he finds his granddaughter reading up on the occult in his study, he definitely goes on the defensive, but in that calm, grandfatherly way. And he gives her this very Van Helsing-appropriate lecture about how you know the Van Helsings have had a long history of encounters with the occult and that he hopes that you know, her curiosity is just academic and that, you know, she takes this stuff seriously. And they have a very nice conversation. The relationship between Jessica and Lorimer is definitely one of my favorite things about this film. I buy it. Originally, Peter Cushing was meant to play Jessica Van Helsing's father, but the death of his wife had aged him so much that they had to do some quick rewrites to the script to make it so that he was actually her grandfather. But yeah, I really enjoy their relationship. I actually like a lot of the relationships 
clips in this film. For the most part, I thought that all of the actors did a really good job with what was relatively mediocre dialogue at times. I don't necessarily like a lot of the excessive sort of like swinging 60s lingo and the beatnik lingo that they use because it does feel overdone at times. And there are moments where I'm just like, okay, we get it. Like far out, groovy, you know, weird, man. Like I get it. This is the 70s. But there were a couple of nice, well-written moments too, particularly when the kids go to the chapel. Well, first of all, Jessica finds the headstone of her great-grandfather outside of the chapel. There's a little cemetery. And she is understandably freaked out. And Bob is convinced that it's like a really bad joke that Alucard and the rest of the kids are playing on them. And he's ready to take Jessica away. But then Joe pops up out of nowhere and says, hey, we're waiting for you inside. Come on in. It's no big deal. And it, it diffuses the tension just enough that Jessica's like, fine, okay, let's do this. And so they go in and we get this ritual scene, which I am a very big fan of. I think that Christopher Neem, who played Alucard, did a wonderful job. He really committed himself to the moment here. The stuff leading up to the ritual, maybe not so much. They have this uh, very bizarre, wonky pseudo music that they put onto a reel-to-reel. -reel. I do really love that shot, though, where you get the reel-to-reel -reel in the foreground spinning, and then you have the kids settling in around this big occult symbol on the floor of the chapel. Uh, in the background, it's sort of blurred out. I love that shot. The whole film also has that signature hammer color to it, you know, that just makes it really pretty to look at. The sets and the wardrobe are definitely not as impressive as previous Hammer Draculas, but I... I do really enjoy the look of this movie and the ritual scene in the chapel, just the design of the chapel in general. I think it all works really well. So the kids are all sitting around this big occult symbol and they start convulsing to this, you know, bizarre music that's playing. And while they have their eyes closed, Alucard, dressed appropriately in black robes, steps up onto this altar and starts to perform this ritual. All of the kids slowly become transfixed by him as he's doing this. He's calling out to a variety of demons and asking them for help. And then he calls directly upon Jessica and says, you know, come up here. I need to baptize you. <laughs> and Jessica is not in the mood at all. She's still kind of mesmerized by what he's doing. So she doesn't get up and leave, but she does not want any part of this baptism. And before he can convince her otherwise, another one of her friends, Laura, played by the beautiful Carolyn Monroe, I really felt like she was underused in this film for sure. She leaps into the middle of the circle and, and begs begs Alucard to baptize her instead. And at this point, she's just sort of feeling the music and the sensuality of the moment. And he's like, all right, fine. So he goes and he scoops her up and lays her down on the altar. I assume he just figures that, you know, any girl is better than none, even though Jessica Van Helsing is the girl he needs. Um, he's willing to wait for her. And part of that is because Alucard is terrible at his job. <laughs> he is so bad at being a disciple of Dracula. It's ridiculous. He takes Laura and lays her out. She's wearing this gorgeous long black gown with like a plunging neckline. And when she's laying there on the altar and he starts to perform this baptism, he sets this silver chalice on her chest and pours Dracula's ashes in and then cuts his own wrist and bleeds into it. And it's that thick, bright red blood. And he pours that into the chalice. And so then he has this like ashy, bubbly blood soup that he then pours all over poor Laura, and she starts screaming. And visually, I think that that whole scene in general, but particularly that moment, it's unsettling. It really is. I think it's one of the more, I guess you could say, almost shocking moments in the film. Now, coming off of like Scars of Dracula, the film that came out before this, it's not that shocking. In fact, I'd say even the ritual from the beginning of the Satanic Rites of Dracula is a little bit more unsettling than this. But in terms of this film as a standalone film, I felt that that was one of the you know, more horrific moments. So Laura starts screaming and that's enough to snap the kids out of it and everybody gets up and runs off. Bob at this point is kind of dragging Jessica out. She's really worried about leaving Laura alone. But considering that none of them are entirely certain just how real anything that just happened might have been, I think that's how Jessica justifies leaving Laura behind, even though she's still just, she has gotten up off the altar and she's just collapsed onto her knees in the center of that symbol on the floor and she's just screaming and crying. It would have made a lot more sense for her to run off. 
but she doesn't. And Alucard is a little upset that Jessica left, but not too upset because his ritual worked. He goes outside and we see the ground, which has been breathing throughout the course of the ritual as well. We, we cut back and forth between the ritual scenes and the exterior of the chapel where the, the ground is breathing and slowly smoking. I also really enjoy that. I thought that was very cool. And the smoke billows up from the hallowed ground where Dracula was buried, not too terribly far from Van Helsing. And we get this huge, thick cloud of mist rising up in front of a stark black background. And from within that mist appears Christopher Lee as Dracula, that classic Dracula, you know, clad all in black, tall, sinewy. He's got the long black cape with the red lining, very minimal makeup. And he's so sinister and just beautiful. I love Christopher Lee as Dracula. I would never try to compare him to Bela Lugosi. I don't think that that would be fair. They're two very different actors that give two very different performances. I think both actors did their best to kind of try to respect Bram Stoker's original work, particularly Christopher Lee. He was always very adamant about that. So you have this kind of combination. You have the weight of the Dracula that we had already seen on film, um, you know, living within us, as well as our images, our own personal private images of Dracula from having read the book. And then here comes just the looming Christopher Lee. And oh my God, he's just wonderful. And it's great because as soon as he manifests, he immediately takes credit for Alucard's hard work and just stalks past him, walks right into the chapel and kills Laura. All of the reveals, really, of Dracula in these films were epic. And it's ironic because, you know, Christopher Lee, God, the man was a fucking miracle. He was amazing. (laughs) Uh, But he hated all of these movies. He hated them. And like to the point where, and this is, you know, drawing from his autobiography as well as reports from like behind the scenes stuff and people who worked with him. um, There were times when he would just flat out refuse to read some of the lines. He wouldn't even perform them because he hated the dialogue so much in some of these movies. And um, he wanted very much to try to stay as close as possible to the Bram Stoker novel in his portrayal of Dracula, but also in the film's portrayal of Dracula and, and the other characters. He wanted to tell Bram Stoker's Dracula, and they never let him do that. And he swore off playing Dracula for a long time, too, because um, I think partly because of that. And then also because he really didn't want to end up being typecast as Dracula the way Lugosi had been, which I think worked out okay. I think the average moviegoer these days probably thinks more of the Lord of the Rings trilogy when they think about Christopher Lee than they do um, his role as Dracula, although for me, he will always be Dracula. (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, I don't think that he ended up being as typecast as he was afraid to be. But he kept going back to the films. He swore up and down he would never play Dracula again, that he hated the material. He would refuse to speak some of his lines, and yet he kept going back. And there have been a lot of questions as to why. You know, whether it was just the money, personal favors, love of the crew, or, the, or, or Peter Cushing. You know, whatever it might have been. I'm really glad that he did, though. Even in these silly, off-the-wall sequels. I I love him in these movies. And one complaint you will hear a lot about this movie is that Dracula is really not in it enough. And when he is in it, he's kind of confined to the chapel. He doesn't have a whole lot of speaking lines. And those those remarks are not incorrect. Those are not wrong. He is not in the movie that much. He doesn't speak that much. I think part of it is because of everything I just said about Christopher Lee and his attitude toward the dialogue in most of the Dracula sequels. And this one in particular had to have been just an impossible sell. I think it's important to remember that in the 57 Dracula, which was the introduction of Christopher Lee as this character, I think he was only in that movie for like less than 10 minutes. He didn't have a whole lot of lines or screen time in that either. He had much more screen time in the 57 Dracula than he did in Dracula AD, but he wasn't in that movie a lot either. And for me, it doesn't really bother me too much because what we do see of him is, oh, it's just pure fucking film molasses. It's just so sweet and amazing and I love it. It's It leaves a lasting impression. It's everything that I know and love about this Dracula. And what lines he does deliver are all very memorable lines. So Laura is dead. All of the kids have fled the scene and Alucard has one job, which is to mutilate and dispose of Laura's body. 
He needs to cover up the fact that she was bitten by a vampire and get rid of the body. And what does he do? He does mutilate her body, but he he leaves her body basically right there on the chapel grounds. And some kids stumble upon it the very next day because, as I mentioned, Alucard is terrible at his job. So when the body is reported and the police come to investigate, it doesn't take them long to ID Laura because she had been busted for drugs previously. And Laura turns out to be a blazing arrow leading directly to Professor Lorimer Van Helsing and his granddaughter, Jessica. The inspector in charge of solving this mystery of what happened to Laura is familiar with Lorimer because uh, apparently the police force consulted with him at one point on a different case. And they consider Lorimer to be an expert on the occult. And they mention that there are cult murders that have been happening recently in America that kind of reminded them of what happened to Laura, primarily because of the mutilation of the body. So that's why they're like, hey, we're going to need to talk to Jessica because she's a friend of Laura's and see if maybe we can't find out where Laura was or like what led her here. We may as well talk to Lorimer while we're there because this guy knows a lot about demonology and the occult and maybe he can give us some insight into what might have happened to this girl in case we are seeing our own version of, you know, those kinds of American cult murders. So now Dracula lives again. His disciple, Alucard, is on a mission, and the police have reached out to Professor Van Helsing to see if maybe he can't help them figure out what happened to this young girl. In addition to asking Van Helsing for advice, they also have to tell Jessica that Laura is dead. Now, there is a scene back at the Cavern Coffee Bar where all of the kids the next night are talking about, you know, the fact that nobody's seen Laura or Johnny in a while. They just sort of discuss how freaked out they were by the whole thing. And then Johnny shows up and says it was all one big gag. He gaslights them. He also tells them that he just dropped Laura off um, at, I think, the train station to go visit her mother in some town that none of them had ever heard her talk about. A couple of them are convinced, but Jessica is not at all. Johnny tries to apologize to her by offering to take her to this big deal jazz concert, um, but she declines. And Gaynor, another one of their friends, asks if she can go to the concert instead. So once again, Alucard tried to get Jessica. He was trying to convince Jessica to come with him somewhere so that he could give her to Dracula. And this is the second time that he's failed. He uh, takes Gaynor back to his apartment. The two get intimate. And during that intimate moment, they end up transported into the chapel where Dracula is like his lair now. And uh, Dracula's pissed because the woman Alucard is making out with is not Jessica Van Helsing. And uh, the two of them have a pretty great argument. This was another scene that I felt was fun to watch. I don't necessarily know if I buy that Dracula would have caved so quickly and turned Alucard into a vampire so fast, which he does. But other than that, I like it. And we have this great moment where Christopher Lee is standing with his back to the camera and he's got his cape kind of, he's holding his cape in both of his hands and he's resting his hands on either side of the altar so he just looks like a giant bat as Alucard is groveling and also screaming at him. He goes from being very angry to being very contritious and begging and demanding, you know. He doesn't do a whole lot of like Renfieldy things uh in terms of his like behavior, but this is a very Renfield like moment. Whether or not I buy it, he does make a decent case because he tells Dracula like I get that you need Jessica Van Helsing, but I'm just a person. If you really want me to get her for you, turn me into a vampire. It would make my life easier, make your life easier. Just do it. So he does. So now Alucard is a vampire. Laura and Gaynor are dead. And the police have come to Professor Van Helsing's house to ask him for advice. And they have also informed Jessica of just what happened to Laura. And that's when Jessica just spills everything to them. She tells them all about Johnny and the ritual and everything that happened. She's in tears. She's also wearing... um. I'm not a huge fan of the wardrobe in this film. It's not one of the film's strengths by a mile. But I really like the outfit that she's wearing in the scene. I don't know how to describe it. It's like this like patchwork pastel nun thing, like like a habit. It's like this weird button habit with like little strings hanging off of it. I can't explain it. It's a very neat outfit. Wardrobe-wise, the men are dressed pretty well, particularly Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. They're dressed spectacularly. I do kind of like a lot of what Alucard wears, and I loved Carolyn Monroe's dress from The Ritual, 
But for the most part, other than that, the wardrobe was just sort of lackluster. This outfit is great. She is a complete mess, and Van Helsing's not mad at her. That's the other thing that I like, is that her grandfather isn't angry, really. He just wants to protect her. Now that he is starting to suspect like some serious foul play that very well might involve a vampire, that lineage of vampire hunting is starting, that blood is starting to pump in his veins. Professor Van Helsing and the inspector, uh, they meet again after the body of Gaynor is discovered. That This one was also mutilated. And then... <sighs> fucking Alucard. So he gets turned into a vampire. And once again, he has one job. His one job is to dispose of Gainer's body, mutilate it and get rid of it. He does that, like he gets rid of her body, but clearly not well because the police find it almost instantly. And then he goes out to a laundromat and just sits there drooling with his new fangs over this random woman that's doing her laundry, whose body they also find the next day. And this one, he didn't even mutilate, so it just has two big vampire bites in her neck. Just do your fucking job, man. They're not, they're not difficult instructions. Like, these, this is an easy job. Anyway, so now there are two more bodies, the third of which was definitely bitten. And that is evidence enough for Lorimer, who meets again with the inspector, and he is convinced now, yep, this is a vampire. So then we get um, some lengthy exposition, which Peter Cushing in these Dracula films, that was a huge part of what he did in these movies. <laughs> Apart from being Van Helsing, he also acted as the exposition. Almost every time we get lengthy descriptions and explanations of vampires in general and also Dracula himself. And this is no different. This is where we learn that vampires are vulnerable to um, silver knives as well as... <laughs> Clear running water. This is not the first time that this has been one of Dracula's weaknesses in this series. This is not the first time. My love for these films could outshine the sun, but I really, really hate the clear running water thing. I meant to look it up, actually, to see if maybe there was some sort of foundation for it in history. Uh, but I, I didn't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where it came from. So clear running water can hurt Dracula. Silver knives can hurt Dracula. Uh, I think we established in a previous film that hawthorn bushes can hurt Dracula. Dracula is very vulnerable to the elements in these stories. So Van Helsing tells the inspector he wants to help him put a stop to these killings, which he now is all but certain are being committed by a vampire. He tells him that in order to do his job, he has to, the inspector has to order his men away from the chapel and um, put a tail on Alucard. So the inspector agrees and Lorimer begins his quest to defeat Dracula. In the meantime, Bob, Jessica's boyfriend, is going on his own little private investigation to try to find out more about what may have happened to Laura, what's going on with Alucard, which leads him back to the Cavern Coffee Bar, which has been shut down because of a drug bust. So he breaks in to the cavern to see if maybe there's anybody there because he sees um, Alucard's car parked outside. And when he gets inside, we hear Alucard off screen say, you know, hey, Bob, I've been waiting for you. And then the next thing we know, Bob shows up at Jessica's house. He's wearing this red scarf around his neck and he's wearing it, I think, through most of the film. But I liked it because it was decorative and it was appropriate for the time period. The neck scarf thing, it was like not quite an ascot, like a bandana-y thing tied around his neck. I always thought it looked looked kind of silly. But this was the first time that I've seen that particular look from that era make sense. Because we know, you know, we didn't see what happened to him at the cavern, but we know he got turned into a vampire. And now, all of a sudden, he's got this scar around his neck. You can't see the bite wounds. He shows up at Jessica's house. Lorimer is gone. He's out looking for Dracula. And Bob convinces Jess that the whole gang is back at the cavern, which she doesn't know has been shut down, answering more questions about what happened to Laura. And Jessica wants to help, so she leaves with Bob. They go to the cavern. Alucard is there waiting. He rips this cross necklace off of her neck that she has. It falls to the floor. And then they take her and deliver her to the chapel. After this happens, Van Helsing, who's been out just kind of combing the city and trying to figure out, you know, where to start and what to do, he stops at a payphone to call the house and check on Jessica, which is when he finds out from what I think is the housekeeper. He finds out that Jessica left with Bob to go to the cavern, which he knows was shut down. So he immediately just hauls ass to the cavern. This is another moment where this music that pisses everybody else off <laughs> makes me really happy because it's this almost like a montage of him running across the city. And it's like, this really upbeat, funky, jazzy chase music. I think it works very well, and it definitely gets me pumped up for the third act of the film. Like, I'm excited. He gets to the cavern, and it's empty of all but 
Jessica's cross necklace on the ground. He picks it up and proceeds to try to comb the city even further when he runs into one of Jessica's other friends, Anna, who stops him and says, hey, I've I've been looking for you. I kind of figured out where everybody might be. You know, if everyone is freaked out by the police and all of that, they'll probably go to Johnny's. And this confuses Van Helsing because all of the kids swore that they didn't know where Johnny lived. But Anna insists that she does, that she just lied to the police about it. I thought maybe Anna was a vampire as well. Since we didn't really see what happened to Bob, who knew how many of their friends Alucard had gotten to? And I thought maybe she was tricking him, but it turned out that she wasn't. So uh, Van Helsing goes to Alucard's. Now, you have this, what I think is a very entertaining, very fun, spirited installment in this series of films. You have the great Peter Cushing, the great Christopher Lee in these wonderful roles that they just own, you know? You have Christopher Neem, who did a great job as Alucard. Don't forget Stephanie Beecham, who, I mean, you know, apart from, like I said, it's not really the most memorable female role in any Hammer Horror film or even in this series, but it has what I think is a very fun score. I think it's a neat story, regardless of how derivative it may be. It's just an entertaining watch. I am saying this, I'm reminding both you and myself of this because... What happens next is not just my least favorite scene in the film, but definitely the dumbest vampire death I have ever seen ever in the history of vampires dying in movies. It is so bad. And especially when you consider like how many ways we have killed vampires in film. We blew a vampire's head off with rogue electricity from a giant stereo system in Lost Boys, for God's sake. We've thrown them into pits and buried them alive. We've gotten them drunk and then just let them wander out into the daylight. Like there are so many things we have done to kill vampires. This is the worst. Just before Lorimer arrives at Alucard's apartment, Alucard is packing up his entire life, which seems to consist of two things, 40 pounds of black velvet fabric and one lone golden lamp. And then Lorimer Van Helsing arrives. They get into a physical scuffle. Alucard cuts Van Helsing up pretty badly with his knife on one of his arms. And then the sun rises. And this is where the timeline is really hinky. So that my problem with this whole thing, this whole fight between Alucard and Van Helsing is a two, it's a twofold problem. Firstly, that the sun rises. I find this very confusing because it was definitely nighttime but not like two in the morning when Jessica is tricked out of her house and Bob and Alucard abduct her and deliver her to Dracula. So that happened like at like 11 or 12 at night. And Lorimer has been out running around the city all night long to the point where the sun is about to come up, but it's still dark. He goes into Alucard's and fights with him. And then while they're fighting, and he's only in there for like five minutes, the sun not only rises, but comes up enough that like there's so much sunlight in the apartment now that all it takes is just like pushing a curtain aside and Alucard is hurting. And in addition to that, what has Dracula been doing all night? Because if Jessica was delivered to him at like 11 o'clock at night and it's now sunrise when Dracula has to go to bed, that's like many hours that Dracula had to do whatever he was going to do with Jessica, which he didn't do. So the whole thing feels so rushed and half formed and I can't stand it but more than the time weirdness the sunlight that Van Helsing uses against him kind of forces him upstairs and although he has many rooms to choose from he stumbles into the bathroom where there is a giant skylight flails around and hits the blind that comes like shooting up and now we have just tons of natural daylight pouring into the bathroom He tumbles over, trips in and falls in the shower, and his arm hits the handle that turns the shower on. So he's laying there in the bathtub, being baked by the sun, and now being burned by the clear running water that we established can hurt vampires. And the bathtub fills up crazy fast. So he ends up like burning alive and drowning. And he doesn't get up at all. It reminded me of that bathtub scene from Slaughter High, which believe me, we will be talking about at the end of this month. Um, that's what it reminded me of. I'm just like, dude, why didn't you get up out of the tub? Like you could have left the room. You could have stood up. I mean, maybe the pain from the sun is just kind of paralyzing, but, um, and then I don't know. I don't know about the clear running water. I have no idea how that would work, but it is very, very dumb in my opinion, (laughs) but it's really the biggest complaint that I have. And most everything that follows it, I think is fantastic. It's one of the many reasons I love this film is what happens once Lorimer has gotten Alucard out of the way and he goes to the chapel to rescue Jessica. When he gets to the chapel, he finds Bob dead. 
We don't see what happened to him. Evidently, there was a scene in the film where we actually see a little bit more of what happened to Bob, but they took it out. So he's just dead on chapel grounds. Van Helsing goes into the chapel, and there's Jessica lying out across the altar, all dressed in white, and she's unconscious. She's taking a Dracula nap. But he he tells her that everything's going to be okay, that he'll be right back, and he puts the cross necklace back on her, and then goes outside and just goes full-on Nancy Thompson. He, like, starts whittling stakes and digs a pit and puts a bunch of stakes in it, and he's, like, setting a big booby trap for Dracula. It's great, actually. I love it because they do this little sequence of him whittling in the sun, and he's all sweaty, and they do this, like, close-up. It's also another really big selling point for me with the hammer Dracula's is if you, if you are at all a fan of Peter Cushing's face or Christopher Lee's face, these are the films for you because they're just all face whenever the men are on screen. We get these wonderful, clear close-ups. They just have two of my favorite faces in film. And the cameras in Hammer Horror films really love these two guys. It's another big point in, in their favor. So but yeah, we get some nice close-ups of Peter Cushing, like sweating in the sun and looking up like, ugh so hot, but I got to keep whittling these stakes. When the sun goes down, Dracula arrives at the chapel and he sees Jessica lying there on the altar and she sits up and he's immediately repelled by the cross. Now the cross doesn't really do much except just sort of like slow him down for about two seconds, which it's Christopher Lee's Dracula. He's already moving pretty slowly. He's taken his time. So all the cross does is just kind of freak him out for a second and he takes a very long time looking away from the cross to just rip it off of her chest and then goes in for the kill. But the one purpose that it definitely served is that Lorimer heard Dracula scream inside the chapel and that's how he knew it was time. So he comes in and as Dracula is leaning down to bite Jessica, who is at this point completely enthralled by him, we hear Van Helsing scream Dracula's name from across the chapel. And it is wonderful. And when Dracula rises to face Van Helsing, his eyes are, are doing that amazing blood red effect where he's got that bloodlust. And I know that those contacts were hell on Christopher Lee. But man, I love that effect so much. It is so vile. It's evil. I just, I, I, it's one of my favorite little details of the character of Count Dracula in these films is that bloodlust. Van Helsing tells him to look on him and remember. So then we get some flashbacks, very brief flashbacks of uh, Dracula's death and Lawrence Van Helsing's death. And the two have a battle. Now, it is not the best big battle that I've seen these two men have. It could definitely have stood to be a little longer because this epic fight between Dracula and Van Helsing, you know, like like we were talking about at the beginning, you know, the, the big fight on the moving carriage, this is what they knew you wanted to see. You wanted to see Van Helsing and Dracula going at it to the death. And so to come to this end, this conclusion, and to have what is essentially a pretty quick and anticlimactic fight, it just feels a little, it's a little disappointing. But we do get a couple of cool moments. Um, they fight from the first floor of the chapel up into this lofty area on a kind of burned out second floor. And Van Helsing stabs Dracula with his silver knife kind of in the stomach and Dracula stumbles and topples down onto the first floor but he's not dead and he's conscious enough that he's able to control Jessica he gets her up off of the altar and she walks toward him to take the knife out of his stomach we get some very unnecessary hesitation from Van Helsing here like he just sort of watches her slowly walk to Dracula when this whole time he could have been running down the stairs he waits like just a little bit too long but when he finally gets down there Dracula is standing up and Jessica is holding the knife in her hands, just like a zombie. And I really like that part. I love that moment when he finally gets downstairs and they're just Dracula's, the look on Dracula's face is great. So the fight resumes and the two men end up fighting outside on the chapel grounds where Lorimer throws holy water on Dracula, which makes him stumble again, this time falling into the giant pit of stakes. And they just, they all impale him. And immediately Jessica, who's standing in the doorway of the chapel now, she starts struggling with the mind control. It looks like it's hurting her. He's not quite dead, so he still sort of has a hold on her. But he's not quite alive either, so she's just kind of spazzing out. And Van Helsing is watching as Dracula writhes and blood is just spurting up from his back where the, the main stake is kind of sticking out. And then one of my other favorite moments from the film happens where Van Helsing, who is tired of waiting for Dracula to die, takes the shovel that he used to dig the pit and jabs it into Dracula's back and just shoves him further down onto the stakes, releasing his hold on Jessica completely as Dracula dies again. We get some more of that great 
decaying effect. And Jessica runs into her grandfather's arms and apologizes. And the two of them turn to walk away. But before they do, Lorimer looks at her and quotes to her the words on Lawrence Van Helsing's grave, rest in final peace. These words pop up on the screen in that gorgeous blood red and the two walk away from the camera and the credits roll. So that is Dracula AD 1972. Yeah, there are a lot of things you could say against it. Absolutely. It didn't have the same elegance that a lot of the films that came before it did. There are some incontinuity errors as well. I would have preferred a longer fight scene at the end. But for the most part, I felt that knowing what this film was trying to do, which is something that we see done left and right in 2019, it's done all the time. And though I'm not typically a fan of reboots, as I said earlier, you know, just kind of going back to Gary Smith and what he said about um, the time period in which this film is set, I just feel like to me, I'm too far removed from 72 to be personally offended by the depiction of what was modern day then. And any opportunity to watch Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee go head to head as these particular characters, I will take and I will walk away from that feeling entertained and satisfied. It had some really great stuff in it, this movie, and it was fun. And while I do agree with a lot of the criticisms that I've heard about it, I do feel like people are just a little too unfair to it. It doesn't deserve any awards, but it's fun. And if you look at it within the context of the Hammer Dracula series, then you also have to consider that this was Hammer Films trying to keep their horror legacy alive. Dracula AD was directed by Alan Gibson and written by Don Houghton, both of whom were equally involved in the direct sequel to Dracula AD, which is The Satanic Rites of Dracula, which is an even further deviation from the films in this Dracula series. It's a little bit more of like a crime thriller, um, but I also like that one as well. <laughs> I think your worst night with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee as Dracula and Van Helsing is is better than your best night with just about anybody else. All right, so thank you again, Suzy Q, for requesting that review. I hope it didn't suck. Um, now on to your guys' questions, which I really appreciate you guys coming with me on this one because it's very silly. Like, our community is so small. You, Most of you could have just asked me these questions in person, but I... I'm really glad you guys asked these questions on the Discord. Um, gives me something else to do tonight, and I'm looking forward to it. I did briefly glance at the questions, uh, but I tried not to respond to any of them directly or think too hard about my answers because I wanted to kind of try to answer them in the moment. So Eli asked, what kids' movies are scary to you even as an adult? And then the conversation continued with a gif from a movie called Don't Look Under the Bed, which I guess is a Disney Channel original. I have never seen it, but I know both Eli and Jordy were terrified of it when they were kids. Jordy says it messed me up for a long time when I saw it, and my little sister still clams up if I mention it to her. Um, I thought when I first saw the GIF, it looked familiar, but I, I don't think that I've seen it. So I definitely want to look that up. I don't know what streaming service it's on. I'll have to ask Jordy. The GIF is pretty unsettling. It's like a kid crawling across the floor, like sinisterly grinning in the camera in a very creepy way. So I'm, I mean, I'm intrigued. As far as children's movies that still scare me today as an adult, I, I can really only think of one. I mean, I am, okay, so maybe two. The transformation scene uh, from The Witches, Angelica Houston's transformation, where she strips off her costume and she's no longer, you know, one of the most beautiful women who walked the earth. She's this grotesque, monstrous witch character. It scared me to death when I was a kid. But now it's it's like it taps into that part of me that remembers being scared of it as a child, you know? It doesn't necessarily freak me out today. Like if I fell asleep watching the witches, I don't know that I would have nightmares. But that transformation scene was very unsettling to me as a kid. And when I watch it now as an adult, it can kind of kind of wake some of those memories up, you know? The one children's film that I can say with certainty still creeps me the fuck out is Return to Oz from 1985. It is definitely one of my top five favorite kids movies ever made. And and the thing is, is that although it was based on several different Frank Oz books and it was packaged for kids in some ways, there is no way that they weren't trying to scare the hell out of their audience. They were absolutely trying. When you have like characters like the Wheelers, the Wheelers, man, God, they were terrifying. They were like garbage pail kids that were also sort of like henchmen. 
that lived in this like bombed out, abandoned part of Oz. And they had wheels on their hands and they just wheeled around everywhere with these really long arms. And then just Ozma, what they did with Ozma, and she had that whole room full of heads that she could just interchange her head and she had the little key dangling off of her arm or even in the beginning when little Feruza Bulk is going to this clinic so they can figure out what's wrong with her like with her sleeping you know she's like at a sleep clinic and they hook her up to this huge machine they're like wheeling her down the hallway on this gurney and it is scary it also though was like one of the most whimsically awesome kids movies that I've ever seen too you know um you have some really wonderful characters that she meets along the way and then there are lunch pail trees it's just it's a fucking magical experience man i cannot recommend return to oz enough but if you want to get the full effect of return to oz watch it alone at night in the dark and you'll see what i'm talking about <laughs> jordy asks if you had to pick a slasher to be who would you be and why um this is tough because I don't ever think about this. I always think about the other side of it. I think, you know, oh, if I could live the life of one final girl, <laughs> what life would I live? I never think about what killer I'd be. I guess I would probably be Michael Myers. I guess for a couple of reasons. First of all, because um, clearly Michael Myers appreciates Halloween. If I were ever going to kill anyone, I'd probably want to do it on that day, my favorite day of the year. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't really have to worry about my makeup or my hair, you know, how I look on any given day because I got the mask. Wouldn't have to have a bunch of inane chit-chatty conversations with people ever. <laughs> so that'd be nice. And I like Haddonfield, Illinois. Oh, and I would have been able to spend many years of my life in the company of Dr. Loomis, which actual Michael may not have appreciated it, but I certainly would. I wouldn't want to be Jason because, I mean, I wouldn't want to live the rest of my life in fear of water, slimy and scarred, and then get resurrected really weirdly. I, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't want to live. I wouldn't want to go to space. Definitely wouldn't want to be Leatherface. I love the Sawyers, but they are not the family for me. I would be nauseated 24 hours a day living in that house. Can you imagine? I don't know enough about, like, Russ Thorne, you know, for example, to be like, oh, yeah, I'd like to be him because we have no idea what his life is like apart from just, you know, killing a bunch of girls at a slumber party. We have no idea. Yeah, Michael Myers. That's my answer. Han asks, what is the definition of a horror movie. There are plenty of terrifying movies that wouldn't be primarily categorized as horror. I feel that the classical horror genre requires the presence of certain tropes. Now, this is something that Kat and I went into in great detail during the Halloween episode. So for a much more in-depth answer, I would point to that episode. You could say that in order for a film to qualify for you know, categorization as a horror film, that it has to meet certain criteria, like a certain number of tropes from the genre have to be present or have to have been created by that film. There has to be a certain structure. There have to be certain elements. You could say that. For me, the definition of horror is a very broad one, and it covers all manner of sins. I was One of the things that I mentioned on Halloween was the film Talk Radio by Oliver Stone. It's just the story of a shock jock in Dallas, Texas, and uh, a glimpse into his life as he's kind of teetering on the edge of a mental breakdown. And he has this mental breakdown on the air. And then it's also about what happens to him afterward. And it was a very frightening film for me for a lot of different reasons that I'm not really going to go into right now because it's just a lot. But it resonated with me and it terrified me and made me feel very anxious and very afraid, both for myself and for this character. And also like profoundly sad for also for this character and for the world and I was angry and scared it provoked all of these emotions but more than anything what it did was it forced me to confront certain aspects of myself of my own mind that I may not be very proud of or that I may also be a little afraid of at times and that to me is the closest thing that I have to the definition of a good horror film. Why I love horror movies is, well, there are a lot of reasons. You know, it's a very nuanced love that I have for this genre, but I think that at the heart of it, horror films challenge us to face our fears, to confront them, to acknowledge them. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a very powerful, very influential thing. And so in my eyes, a horror film, that's really the only criteria 
that I require of it is for it to provide me with a direct confrontation <laughs> with my fears. That's just me. I also consider films like Fatal Attraction and Single White Female, I consider those horror films. Technically, those are thrillers. I think your definition of horror is what matters, you know, for you. All right, I got two more. Jen asked, which setting is scariest to you in a movie, i.e. cabin in the woods, abandoned hospital, et cetera, et cetera? Um, that's a good question, too. I It's changed over time because for the longest time, hospitals were the scariest thing in the world to me in film. I think that comes from, you know, having grown up watching Halloween 2 and being just terrified by that movie. The idea of this hospital, this place of sanctuary, a place where you are supposed to be safer than anywhere else in the world, being there and nothing there being able to protect you from whatever darkness or evil is lurking around the corner, particularly like in films like Halloween 2, although there are more, you know, like it, but that's the one that's in my head right now. The hospital is functioning in a very with a very small staff. There aren't a whole lot of people there. It's not very well lit. That's scary, but also so, like, I remember the scenes from Wes Craven's New Nightmare where Nancy is trying to uh, get back into the ICU to see her son. Some of those scenes in the hospital were also scary. And that was a very well-lit, highly populated hospital. You know, of course, that had the added element of, you know, the reason why it was so scary is because nobody could see Freddy because they were awake. But still, like, I, yeah, hospitals really scared me for a long time. Um, now, I think rural settings, like very rural, um, way out in the middle of nowhere in a place that's very flat. There's nowhere to go, nowhere to run. <laughs> Anything that you could find, like any kind of setting that would put you in mind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or or Wolf Creek, like those kinds of settings that they're definitely, I think, much scarier to me now than than anything else. So Jordy had another question. And this question I really don't know how to answer, but I'm going to try. If you could transplant any final girl to a different movie, who would she be and where is she going? <laughs> um, I This is another question I've never thought about in my entire life. Oh, my, whatever my answer is, it's going to be so stupid. <laughs> I think I would take Elena Maxwell from Terror Train, Jess from Black Christmas, the original from 1974, and... Sally from the original Texas Chainsaw, I would lift them out of their films and I would drop them into that convertible from Mean Girls and they would be going shopping. That's my answer. That's my, that's my final answer. <laughs> So thank you guys so much again for being active on the Discord, talking to me, giving me your feedback, asking me questions, being just generally amazing. And uh, don't forget this week uh, on Friday, November 22nd, I won't be posting an episode because we're going to be trying to do our first uh, Discord hangout at 8 p.m. I don't know how well that's going to work out because it is Friday night and I know some of you have to work. So if it doesn't work out this week, that's fine. We'll we'll just need to come up with like a better day for it. But I'm going to try, damn it. I'm going to be in the Discord, sitting in that voice channel waiting for you guys. I really want you to watch Slaughter High with me. Speaking of Slaughter High, next week I will be posting my last episode for November, which is going to be all Slaughter High all the time. I'll be going through the whole movie and I will be taking um, your guys' comments about the film and incorporating them into my review. I know that some of you had quite a few opinions about it. I am very excited <laughs> to explore those opinions. And I will be doing my very first giveaway. Gutter Garbs just started selling officially licensed Slaughter High t-shirts and I love them and I would like to purchase one for one of you. And I figured since this is uh, my very first time doing a giveaway, we would just do something really simple. So we're just going to do a drawing. I'm just going to draw a name out of Alan's hat. So if you want to participate in the giveaway, then go to the B Movie of the Month channel on Discord and let me know that you want your name entered into the drawing. I just feel like that is sort of the most fair way to do it right now with there being so few of us because I and most of you guys are my friends. I just I don't want to like do some sort of creative contest and then have to choose between you guys like you know I it just makes me feel oogie so we're gonna do a drawing this month and if it goes well then we'll just we'll do it every month it might not always be a t-shirt but I'm excited about that I think that's I think it's gonna be fun right win a t-shirt for a movie that you all hate <laughs> yeah so just pop over to the discord let me know you want to be entered into the drawing and I will draw the name during next week's podcast 
Not a whole lot of horror news this week. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't a lot happening in horror. It's just I haven't really been keeping up with it this week. <laughs> there is a new film on Hulu uh, written by Noah Feinberg, Patrick Melton, and Marcus Dunstan called Pilgrim. John Squires of Bloody Disgusting wrote that Pilgrim isn't merely a horror story that happens to be set during Thanksgiving, but rather it's a film steeped in Thanksgiving history and tradition, all of which, of course, is perversely twisted for our enjoyment. I think that's probably going to be worth checking out this year. I know that people are all up in arms about the uh, the new Black Christmas remake being PG-13. I'm not in favor of it, but it has really very little to do with the PG-13 rating. That contributes to my lack of enthusiasm, but for the most part, I just I'm, I have the same reaction now as I did when they first remade it. I, I really enjoy the original Black Christmas. I wish that they would leave it alone. <laughs> just write your own Christmas horror story and stop trying to remake this one because you're doing it wrong repeatedly now. And I realize it's ironic that I'm talking about this now having just reviewed Dracula AD, which was a bit of a reboot of that Dracula series and an attempt to modernize. And I'm defending it while at the same time kind of slamming the new Black Christmas. Now that being said, uh, one of the trailers that was recommended by Jordy on the Discord this week is another reboot. It, well, it's a modernization anyway. It's a new version of The Invisible Man. And I'm sure everybody out there is aware of this trailer by now. I hadn't seen it until I went to see Dr. Sleep. I am very surprised at how good I think that looks. I don't know how good it'll actually be, but man, it looks pretty good. So, I mean, I don't know. It's a case-by-case -case basis, I guess. Before I wrap up tonight, huge thanks to my patrons, Eli, Suzy Q, Alan, and Chad. I have no idea why you guys give me money to create this podcast, but I am so grateful that you do. If you're not a member of our Discord community and you would like to be, you can go to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash final girl confessions. And about halfway down the front page, you will find an open invite to the Discord just below the link to this podcast on Anchor. Also, if you prefer not to do Discord, but you would like to keep in touch uh, with the podcast, and join in on some of these conversations. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my username there is Final Girl Friday. I hope you guys have a fantastic week. If I don't see you on Friday night, I will definitely be talking to you next Friday where we will finally be talking about Slaughter High from 1986. I am very much looking forward to recording that episode. <laughs> Until next time, creep it real. Creep it real.